I was up late flipping the channels the other night, which is the best time for a local PBS station to put on their premium shit. If you're lucky, you'll get that Alone in the Wilderness show about Dick Prennicky and the sledding wolverines, or a mini-marathon of Joy of Painting, which is just the perfect way to fall asleep, and sometimes one of a treasure trove of classic concert films. Now, I know I present myself as the very hip and now host of Friendly Fire, but I'll have you know that my musical interests have always been before my time. The very first concert I ever went to was Jimmy Page and Robert Plant at the Tacoma Dome, the giant concert venue with the acoustics of a shipping container south of Seattle. I was in middle school, and let me tell you, wearing that concert t-shirt the next day did not have the making-me-cool effect that I had hoped for, except with the teachers, which, as you could guess, had the opposite effect. So I really like settling into an old concert film from time to time, and one of my favorites that I've lucked into on PBS has been from The Highwaymen, recorded live at the Nassau Coliseum in New York in 1990. The first time I saw it, it blew my mind. Johnny Cash and Willie Nelson and Waylon Jennings and Chris Christopherson. They're the four richest men in country music and they're singing songs about being long-haul truckers or ship captains or dam builders. Only Chris Christopherson could credibly be all three. Four of the best standing in a row, each taking a lyric before everyone sang the chorus. It made me wonder why we don't get more supergroups. The idea is so tantalizing and you don't just get them in bands, they're probably most pervasive in sports teams, but also, and maybe especially, in fictional worlds like comic books and movies. But a supergroup is no guarantee of success. That doesn't stop people from trying. For every traveling Wilburys, there's a 2004 LA Lakers. For every Velvet Revolver, there's a Justice League? Look, you get my point. Just because you cram a bunch of talent into a project doesn't make it good. I should know, I'm one of the hosts of Friendly Fire. War movies are a movie genre especially tantalizing to a studio interested in supergroups, and I think that's because you can hire a guy for a day and kill him that night, giving their star wagon to someone else while the bed is still warm. It's why every great actor from 1998 is in the thin red line. It's also why everyone who used the star wagon after Nick Nolte hated his guts. You just know that guy was murder on the plumbing. You can tell that this was the idea with Flight of the Intruder, a film that feels produced by the same people who make superhero films today. Willem Dafoe and the Marlboro Man have been in separate movies for far too long. Danny Glover should be in this, he's great in everything. Ving Rhames, seems like he'll be a star one day, let's use him now. We can't have only one director, that's horseshit. Gimme John Milius and John McTiernan and fighter planes and a rogue mission and the biggest drum of fake blood you can find. The movie poster practically designed itself. This film should have been a license to print Dong. Instead, this was just another supergroup that didn't work. Not even Basil Baladoris could save it. It honestly could have used a Waylon Jennings in it for a verse or two. And like a town square in Hanoi stocked with missiles, films like these make great targets for shows like ours. It's a spectacular mess. Like we are the world. Tell you what, I came here to bomb. On today's friendly fire, Flight of the Intruder. Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast that came here to bomb. I'm Ben Harrison. <laughs> Sitting three wide with you guys, I'm Adam Pranica. <laughs> and I'm John Roderick. I wear the silver star. I like it when uh, when the pilot and the, and the bomber sit next to each other. That's nice. That is really sweet. Like a, like a love seat bomber. Bomber is my co-pilot. On the uh, on the intruder, the uh, the weapons systems operator actually sits slightly below and behind the pilot, just slightly, just like 
Six inches b- below and six inches behind. Like where the way you sit on a on the set on a talk show, like like David Letterman <laughs> has to be a little bit higher and a little bit closer to the camera than you. Yeah, it's it's very strange. There's a there's a couple of shots in the movie where Willem Dafoe looks really small, really shrimpy uh, compared to uh, Brad Johnson, and it's because his he in if you look at the seats in the plane, they're actually staggered weirdly staggered maybe that's why richard gear turned the part down oh yeah you wouldn't even see him <laughs> he'd, he'd be down in the footwell one aspect of the a6 that i thought was really interesting that they didn't carry forward into the film was that the bombardier wears a hood yeah. when deploying ordnance they put their head into a big sack and uh willem dafoe is not going to go for that you're not going to cover up that face with a hood so they left that detail out of the film. Richard Gere tried to put a gerbil in, into the hood. <laughs> so I didn't want to work with him. The, uh, the, the fact that the bombardier or the weapons guy flies with his head in a hood is a crazy detail of the way that that airplane operates that I wish they had shown that in the movie. That, that's, a, that's a super trip. Is it like to cut out the light? Yeah. Most of the missions in this movie take place at night. Would you not need the hood at, on a on a nighttime mission? I think that's when you would need the hood, especially. Yeah, you've got all all the instruments are all illuminated and oh, want want super blackout capabilities. I liked the like Nintendo Entertainment System level targeting computer. Yeah, <laughs> that this airplane had too. Very interesting to see like super early versions of of that kind of technology. A lot of people think, well, the people who flew them, the people who who crewed around them thought the A6 was ugly. I don't think this plane is ugly. I think I like it. Call it a drumstick. It looks like a tadpole. You know, the F-15, the F-16, the F-14, all the all your teeny bopper airplanes, they get so much <laughs> screen time. We know so much about them. We hear about them all the time. Oh, all the famous planes. And the A-6 is like a workhorse. It's always there on the flight deck, but it's, you know, it's never the one the hero flies. And, um, and I finally got a chance to spend some time with the A-6 intruder. And it was really, it was my, uh, it was my favorite character, like finally get to know what this plane does. I learned that after the B-52, the A-6 intruder had the heaviest, you know, could carry the 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 greatest ordnance of any plane in the military. It's amazing. It can carry it can carry half as many bombs as a B-52, but it's just this little tadpole looking drumstick airplane. <laughs> <laughs> Is that thing on the nose its refueling probe? Yeah. There's so much radar shit in its nose that there wasn't room to to pack it away like like some other fighter bombers uh, can tuck it in and then deploy it for refueling. Mm. This guy had to just hang it out there. Yeah, you got to be able to tuck it in. (laughs) I really wondered what Milius was trying to do with this movie because it (laughs) let's get into it. There are the things we know about Milius, right? Like, I think that it's obvious what he's trying to do with A Red Dawn. And, like, that movie can be enjoyed on the, like, ironic level of, like, can you believe somebody thought this? And you can also enjoy it on the level of, like, yeah, they probably will invade like this. You know, like, like everybody can get something out of that movie across the spectrum from normal person to yo-yo. But, like, like I kept... Feeling like this movie was trying to make the case that the main character was a hero. And I just, I found him so unlikable. And I wondered, like, was that tension intentional? Like, is is Cool Hand supposed to be a guy that we love and feel like got a raw deal in getting court-martialed and was, you know, saved by the bell? Or do we feel like... Or, or, or does Milius want us to see Cool Hand as like a dangerous uh, renegade within the military? I mean, what's weird is that this movie is another in the classic pantheon of let's fight, let's refight the Vietnam War, except um, in 1991, 
This is kind of Milius coming back at all of that with a movie about how we could have won the war if it wasn't for the chicken shit politicians back in Washington or whatever. You know, like it's this this whole renegade narrative where if we would just let the A6 intruders go into Hanoi and blow up the secret ammo dumps. Yeah. In my head, I kept cutting cutting back to the Pentagon with Alec Baldwin playing McNamara, deciding on all the missions that these guys are going <laughs> yeah, on. Yeah, right. I mean, the uh, the ultimate hero of this film is Nixon, who <laughs> at the end is like, we're starting Operation Linebacker 2, unrestricted bombing over Hanoi. And it's like, that's our hero? This is the, <laughs> this is the moment with the big, where the music plays? That seems to be Milius's milieu, right? <laughs> like the what he prefers, what his special interest is, is the idea of a rogue agent, right? When he rewrote the Sean Connery part in Hunt for Red October, like he's a rogue agent. When when he made Red Dawn, like what what war is that other than rogue teenage agents fighting their war? This character here, our main character that we're supposed to love, I think we're supposed to love him, Ben, to answer your question. I know it's hard, uh, but but like the fantasy of a rogue agent, like you have all this power, what if? And And I think it's a really interesting time to have asked the question in 1991, like as as the Gulf War begins, like the idea of a rogue agent fighter pilot you know, making a left turn and doing what they want to do plants an interesting seed, I think. Kind of a terrifying seed too, right? Like the idea that there are guys that were handing a plane that has this destructive ability over to and hoping that they do what they're supposed to do with it. Yeah. And that's too bad because like the seed is interesting, but what grows out of this movie is is just nothing. Like you neither get the great celebration of a successful rogue mission or the the horror of of the idea of it happening to begin with it it's oddly neutral about it it's just a thing that happened and then uh and then <laughs> cool hands going to go live and work on Danny Glover's aircraft carrier later like <laughs> right. it's, it's just fine well it's a thing that happened they succeed and we get the jazz of like, we bucked the rules and blew up all the Sams and we've saved American lives. And then we get a court martial, but you know, we don't really feel like the court martial scene is actually that bullshit. It feels like pretty legitimate court martial. Pretty everybody's being mm-hmm. pretty legitimate here. And then it ends up the bureaucracy that in a way, like the bureaucracy and political uh like lack of program, lack of policy, ever shifting sands ends up kind of saving our heroes. Right. The exact thing that this movie seems to be, seems to be like tilted against, which is that the people in Washington are just feckless and that ends up kind of serving, serving our, our homies. And then what the, like the end of the movie, they're just high fiving on the, on the deck of a aircraft carrier, like Danny Glover's, going to go on to what command a ship in the malaise years of the mid 70s navy (laughs) where everybody's like doing cocaine off a hooker's ass on the bridge like there's no happy ending here that would have made a great milius film (laughs) cocaine carrier directed by john milius we segue immediately into the run-up to the movie stripes here like, I mean, their next job is commanding the EM-50 uh, urban assault vehicle. <laughs> <laughs> I actually did find an internet pedant that had a, a quibble about the uh, court-martial scene. The basketball court in the gymnasium where Cole and Grafton are questioned about the Hanoi bombing has a college three-point line. There was no college three-point line until the 1980s. Wow. That has got to be the best pedant I've ever heard of. Can't do that. That is good shit. I found myself very drawn to the like non-war pedant stuff in this movie. Because I mean, like, there's definitely like some equipment and uniform pedantry to be had here, but just like really delighted me that somebody was distracted by the floor <laughs> in the gymnasium in the most emotionally charged scene in the movie. 
that's all taking place in the Philippines, right? Subic Bay, yeah. Is the whole ship going there, or is the ship just hanging around off the coast of uh, of Southeast Asia? I think that's the the wonderful thing about being a Navy pilot is that you can fly somewhere else, and the ship just stays out at sea. It's one of the shitty things about being an enlisted sailor. You don't get to fly your plane to Subic Bay to sit in the officer's club. You've just got to rely on the shipboard library for your <laughs> entertainment. I wonder how that works, actually. I'm I'm looking forward to, to hearing some commentary from the Friendly Fire contingent of former uh, naval personnel. Like, if you get shore leave, if you're like a, like a CB, swabby, if whatever they are, if you're a swabo <laughs> and you get shore leave, how do they get you there? Do they put you in one of those transport aircraft or do they put you in a, in a boat? Like, how do they get you? How do they get you to the, to the whorehouses? <laughs> the town they go to those in Vietnam, I, I thought like when they go to the, when they're, when they're in that bar and they're practicing their, their, uh, hook landing on the rig. Oh, I thought that was all in the Philippines. As in the Philippines? I thought so. How do you fuck up the hook ride in that bar? I don't understand how you get that wrong. It's got to be trickier than it looks. Yeah. Or is it just that you're like a mark if you drop the hook super early and people will be like, no, go back, do it again. It seems like the stakes are too high. Like, And, and let's talk about the layout of this bar a little bit. There is <laughs> a giant mud pool on one end at the end of this ride and then there's an alligator enclosure on the other side yeah i don't think it's on the other side because then you'd be over it when you're getting into the chair that would be scary that'd be scarier than the idea of flying into the mud yeah it doesn't seem like this bar is being very efficient with its floor space (laughs) (laughs) if what you want to do is pack in your drinkers to make some money why would you why would you use so much of your space on mud and alligators? That can't be that big of a draw. No. It, I, I, it would not be much of a draw unless every once in a while someone lost an arm to the alligator. Oh, then it's great. But, you know, the Philippines in the early 70s, I bet you, I bet you they lost a hand now and again. This is the scene that crystallized for me how to watch this movie so that it wouldn't just make me mad and sad. Like, this is Roadhouse. Flight of the Intruder is Roadhouse, the (laughs) naval fighter pilot movie. And as soon as I realized that, like, all of my concerns went away. That's all it is. You realize that pain don't hurt. During that scene, I turned to uh, to the young lady I was watching this movie with and said, we're watching fucking Roadhouse. <laughs> and from that from that moment on, I was I don't know if I like relaxed into it because I didn't like the movie Roadhouse. <laughs> I, I definitely knew where we were. Right. God, I think this film is fascinating in its construction. If the three combined brains of Friendly Fire decided to remake Top Gun slightly differently and and in a way that goes something like their finest, you know, hanging up those index cards for plot points. If we just reshuffle those plot points a little bit, this is a strange blended version of Top Gun and Roadhouse. And what else? It's got a little Star Wars, like the way the, the special effects feel and look is is definitely like outside of what Top Gun would have provided as a reference point. Frankly, I saw a little bit of the final countdown in it. It did. It felt like when it when we were transitioning from one movie to the next, it really felt like we were in a different movie. Yeah. Like you, you'd, you'd be in a movie for a while and then all of a sudden you're in a, there was a domestic, like a, like kind of a sad domestic drama. There was a, I lost my partner. Don't talk to me. I'm, I'm all... I'm all deep now. It feels like a film that probably worked better on TV during during its time as a as a TV movie of the week where you're given commercials to break up those those scenes and feelings a little better. Cuz as they are in sequence, it's it's like schizophrenic feeling. Well, but that, I I don't see how like putting commercials in between would would be even more like you'd tune back in and feel like 
wait a minute, is this the same movie? It has the same people in it. Right. But like when Willem yeah. Dafoe arrives, you think, oh, this is a movie about a renegade. There's all that kind of foreshadowing. Like when he and Danny Glover have that first meeting and Danny Glover's like, you're a legend and not in a good way. So, <laughs> you know. But game recognized game because I also am a legend. <laughs> also sort of not in a good way. It's unclear. Like all of that is really foreshadowy about like, oh, Willem Dafoe's going to come in and he's going to take this battle scarred young pilot and convert him into his nasty way of thinking. But it, the, but then it, it goes the opposite way. And Willem Dafoe isn't the one that's, that's got the, the screwed up plan. It's Brad Johnson. I mean, it, it, it kept defying the, the rules that it was laying out for itself, but not in a way that felt like it was, Reinv- like reinventing it or subverting it. It just was like, you you made some laws for this movie uh, in the last scene. Why are we not following those laws in this scene? <laughs> Do you have a good grasp of who the main character is in this movie? Because I know th- like the result of the film, the finished edit gives us Brad Johnson as Cool Hand as its main character, but it kind of feels like it arrives there by default because something was cut out of the Cole and Camparelli stories to make that happen. In reading about the film, one thing I found very interesting is that this movie was uh, adapted from the second novel that was published by the U.S. Naval Institute. The first novel being Hunt for Red October. Whoa! The like adaptation of like the film of the novel was supposed to be directed by John McTiernan and he wound up having like a, a schedule conflict or something. And that's how Milius moved into it. But the guy that wrote the novel of Flight of, Flight of the Intruder is quoted in the Wikipedia article going like, yeah, like a lot of books don't, you know, like it's, it's really different when they make them into a movie. And this book, they really nailed it. It's exactly <laughs> like the book. Yeah, that's faint praise. Right. <laughs> Part of the problem, of course, is that Danny Glover is playing a, a, a role we've seen a thousand times, which is the hard bitten CEO who's abusive to his subordinates, but he's only doing it out of love and because it makes them a better and more cohesive unit. And in reality, he's got a heart of gold. Like that's the character. It's, it's just a, it's a velvet glove cast in iron like it. There it is. Except Danny Glover is not doing a very good job of it. He actually seems just abusive. At no point do you ever see a twinkle in his eye. Do you ever really like him? You never think like, oh, this guy's being really hard, but it's making his crew more cohesive. It's just like this guy is just kind of a jerk. Yeah, that that last scene kind of solves the puzzle. It's it, it's not that he's abusive because he wants unit cohesion. It's, he's abusive because he's an, an ambitious asshole. <laughs> I don't know how I got so far on the other side of this Danny Glover issue from you guys, but but his his sense of humor made it so that I could never take his abuse seriously. I never I never thought he was the jerk. If anything, I thought he was too much of a clown. Maybe we're three blind men describing an elephant. <laughs> That's the tagline of this show. There was something super off about him and and like where he was coming from, because I feel like that role, if you are that hard ass, when you're the hard ass, you've got to be really a convincing hard ass. And then when you break character, it's got to be on purpose. It's got to be in the right moment. It's got to serve the film in some way. And and this just felt like this, this was just like hamburger thrown around a mess hall. He felt like a composite to me for some reason. Like his character was supposed to be two characters. And for right. some reason it wasn't. I'm a weapon system and there was a cost overrun. There was no sense to which version of Camparelli you got scene to scene. Right. Like during a serious moment, he would be funny and weird and irreverent. And in a in what should be a lighter scene, he's the hard ass. I wonder if that's symptomatic of that thing with Milius that you're identifying, which is that it's like the kind of character he likes to write is the renegade. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Camparelli is a company man and therefore maybe a little bit mysterious to Milius. Because I think that Milius is like a very conflicted person. Like he's a very 
right wing guy that, you know, lives and works in Hollywood around people that don't share his uh, values or his politics. And like he talked, you know, about like making this movie, how how he felt like the studio was meddling with it the entire time, but also how excited he was to be on an aircraft carrier. Like it was living out a fantasy for him. Mm -hmm. And it's so interesting to think about like how those kinds of internal conflicts in an artist would manifest characters like this in a film. Yeah, you're, you're right. Like Willem Dafoe is a renegade and Brad Johnson's a renegade. Danny Glover is kind of being portrayed as a renegade. Everybody in this movie is a renegade, but really they're just, they're just guys in the Navy who are fighting in Vietnam until Brad Johnson decides he's going to take the fight to the Vietnamese. But of all the renegades in the movie, he is the least convincing. He looks like a, you know, he looks like an underwear model and we never, we don't have any motivation for him to be a renegade other than he lost Murph or morgue, whatever he lost morgue and Tom Sizemore. He's a morgue. Oh no. Oh no. (laughs) (laughs) Basically the only, the only thing that converts Brad Johnson into being a rebel is that he's sick and tired of bombing the tree line. Yeah. He gets no secondary explosions, man. Yeah, he didn't sign up for this, for just like drawing out and dropping his bombs on on like crossroads. He wants to he wants to fuck some shit up. There's no character tension there, right? Like he's like all we get is that he's avenging Morg's death or something. But we don't even really when he drops the bombs, he doesn't even like kiss his dog tags and say, like, that's for you, Morg. It's just like if he's if he's truly a rebel, he's got to have some kind of like a, Tom Cruise, at least, has got a chip on his shoulder because he's short. You got to be motivated. Yeah, that motivation issue feels like it's missing because Morg dies pretty early in the movie, but it's not like he turns right to the idea of exacting his revenge on the North Vietnamese or anything like it's there's like an hour of movie before he even comes up with that idea right and the guy that killed Morg was a guy with a like a muzzle loader some some rice farmer with a muzzle loader that just gets off a lucky shot it's not even we don't even get like the Rambo satisfaction of having some uh evil commie bad guy that we keep cutting back to (laughs) some evil commie bad guy that's stacking barrels of gas on top of a waterfall i mean as satisfying as it is for films to have like the bad guy to blow up with an exploding arrow at its end like there's something interesting about the senselessness of a just fucking lucky shot that a farmer takes at your bomb guy and the film refuses to lean into that even. Yeah, that's right. I, mean, I, I thought that was a great scene and I waited for it to evolve into something when the, you know, when the doctor comes up holding the bullet and he's like, it's from a musket. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what a great debriefing that would be. This is one of those examples, though. If you move the death of Goose to the beginning of Top Gun, how does it change the tone of that story? Sizemore is kind of supposed to be the goose. I thought Sizemore was the sundown of this film because he's the guy who's always trying to get cool hand to like get back up on the horse and and to stop calling him Morg. <laughs> you know? Well, that's the crazy thing about Sizemore. Like half the time his character is like sort of the saintly fool. And then he has that scene on the boat where he's like, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm going to marry this ugly girl. She's got a baby. It's probably not mine, but it doesn't matter. That's, that's cool. Right. And he's, he, he has this whole soliloquy where he's just like, I'm a, I'm like a naive cuck (laughs) and just tell me, you know, tell me that everything's going to be okay, dad. Yeah. He does get a lot of character development. A lot compared to everybody else, but it's all character development in the wrong way. I mean, when he died, I was kind of like, whew, thank God that fucking turd is out of here. Let's get on with this (laughs) movie. 
Like, isn't he so familiar as like, I am I am a nobody in my job. I'm nobody in most aspects of my life, but I am the most popular guy at the whorehouse. Like, he has his place where he can feel truly alive. And like, that's, <laughs> that's the tragedy of the box man's character, I think. The box man. Like, that that is his place. I would like for us to do a special episode of this show where we just interrogate Tom Sizemore. Yeah. <laughs> Cause wow. he keeps appearing. He's in, he's in so many war movies. I don't know if he's ever been in a movie that wasn't a war movie <laughs> or that wasn't a war movie to him as he was in it. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing about him is he is always extraordinary. Yeah. Like I really like when I see Tom Sizemore when his name flashes in the credits at the start of a movie I'm like well at least we're at least we know one thing is going to be good but Tom Sizemore is such a fucking wreck of a person yeah why is he even a movie star in the first place you afraid of a few bugs son I really I think we should do a special episode where we just Sizemore app wow We'll do that when we go on tour we'll just do we'll just take we'll take snippets of Sizemore out of every movie and just watch the Sizemore scenes. We could call that tour, uh, It's the Sizemore That Counts. Hmm. No? That might work for a Greatest Generation show. Tom Sizemore has 25 projects on his IMDb profile that are completed but unreleased, post-production, in production right now, in pre-production or announced. 25 things. Wow. He's a real worker. The man is busy. Yeah, but how, how, how many of those are never going to be released? <laughs> you know, you, you guys talk about the mess of the life that he's made over his career. I mean, it could just be that, that the work is his salvation, and I hope he's finding it and working as hard as he is because he's clearly very talented. I mean, we love, we love all of his performances. I love him in this movie. It's weird to feel empathy for a Tom Sizemore character the way I do in this film, because I'm not used to conferring that to his characters in anything. And I think it speaks to how little you care about anybody in this movie. I cared about Razor because he was getting shit on so hard. And then when <laughs> Razor at the end of the movie is, you know, born again hard and becomes like a kick-ass fighter pilot, I was rooting for Razor. To be clear, you don't have to stand at attention the way Razor does, right? Like with your back fully bent, you don't have to go that deep into attention. Why is he doing it that way? <laughs> it makes him look like such a JG, right? He hasn't figured out how to slouch at attention. But also like <laughs> Rosanna Arquette was in this movie for some reason. Does she ever come back after that one time where he hangs out with her on the beach? I don't think so. It would have been nice to have him check in with her like, yeah, I'm getting court-martialed. Like, well, didn't he write a letter to her during that? Yeah, they use her for exposition with voiceover, but they never bring her back. I wonder if there's a Snyder cut of this because Milia <laughs> says over and over again like how much studio interference ruined his vision for the film. And you can feel it. Like you can you can feel scene to scene how tonally things shift for no motivated reason. And I wonder to what extent that Camparelli and Cole relationship was was ruined by by a producer somewhere who had an idea. Hmm. It's weird to imagine John Milius being pushed around by a studio. Like the reason you bring in a John Milius is to like give him a stack of money and send him on his way. I mean, does 1991 play into that somehow? This is his swan song, right? Yeah. It's a sad song. I don't think his career was exactly like about box office gold, you know? Right. He had his hands on a lot of interesting projects and, and you know, has a place in Hollywood history for sure. But I don't think he was ever like the it guy, the, the director that you bring in because he's going to, you know, he's going to make a boffo box office picture. And this movie didn't really make its money back, as far as I can tell. $30 million production budget, $14 million something at the box office. Ooh, it was a dog. Yeah. Speaking of, of story avenues that turned into cul-de-sacs, did you think for a moment that Morg was the phantom shitter? 
and that like his death would would stop the shitting and then everyone would realize it was him. Wow, Morg, <laughs> Morg was taking dumps everywhere. I also didn't feel like it was really resolved though. Like was, is Lieutenant Duffy supposed to be the phantom shitter but they caught him phantom pissing? Or is Lieutenant Duffy a different, he's a phantom pisser but there's also a phantom shitter somewhere. It's the conversation in, in the hallway that, that tells me that, that the phantom shitter has, has added uh, a new weapon to his arsenal that he's also uh. pissing. That was the funniest scene to me was that scene with Cool Hand and that guy like speculating about the Phantom Shitter's methods and how dangerous he is. And they're talking about him so seriously. This war, this war's not gonna end. Speaking as someone who's, you know, lived a few lives, you don't escalate from shitting in people's coffee cups <laughs> to pissing in their coffee cups. It goes the other way around. You start as a phantom pisser. Look, I'm, I'm going to ask you, believing that you know the answer, John, but like, if you're going to piss into a coffee cup, why do you put it on the floor and, and hit it from standing height? You don't. You hold the coffee cup. You can piss in it. I'll tell you what. You can piss in a coffee cup and be having a conversation with someone around a corner of a wall, and they won't even know you're pissing in a coffee cup. You know what? I'm I'm going to answer the question myself, John. You can't piss into a coffee cup if you're holding it because of splashback. Unless you can moderate your flow in such a way that isn't going to shoot it back up at your, at your chest and stomach. That's just yeah. a recipe for getting your uniform covered in piss. No, that's not true. If a coffee cup, because it's a handheld, because you can adjust the the angle of attack by changing the cup not changing you don't have to you, you don't have to hold your peter you just move the cup so you can actually you can put the cup up under there you know like you're like you're milking a cow move the <laughs> cup around down over to the side over here over there you can do it so it makes no noise and then you fill the cup to right up to the rim before it becomes a like a i don't like know an issue Look, man. I, I'd have to. I'd have to practice this a number of times. I've pissed in a lot of coffee cups. What's the point of doing it if nobody knows you're doing it? Also, <laughs> it's not a prank war. Oh, Ben, it's because you get to relish in the victory in that meeting. It's the meeting where you get to realize all of the benefits of being the phantom shitter. Because Danny Glover's up there talking about what a monster you are, and you get to to sit back in your seat satisfied <laughs> at all of your work. Maybe I'm just an only child that craves attention but i would want someone else to know so that they could know what <laughs> what a diabolical caper i'm on you would you would leave a shit in a in a in an ashtray and then put like an ace of spades card in it right <laughs> but that's what makes it crazy like i'll piss in a coffee cup all day i would never take a shit in a coffee cup my god what kind yeah. of a monster are you it seems like if you're going to be the phantom shitter that you would shit into like a bag or something and then yeah. take the shit to the place where it goes. Like you're never shitting in, in the shit location, right? <laughs> That's too dangerous. It's too dangerous to transport the shit though. <laughs> Somebody catches you in the hallway. What are you doing? You, you got a mission in the morning, buddy. What's that smell also? Yeah, you stick it in a bag and you stick it in your pocket. You are a brave man, Adam. <laughs> Ugh. Um, getting back to that relationship between Cole and Camparelli, I didn't understand why Cole was so ready to commit Air Force assisted suicide at the end. It didn't seem like it was resolving any of the conflicts of the movie. Because, mm -mm. like, you could have used it to, to have them, like, you know, ride to the rescue of Camparelli. Right. And, and then suddenly they're, like, extremely antagonistic relationship that's been marred by a court martial, like... They have to set it aside because they're rescuing him and he's overjoyed at that. But he like they they maintain hating each other even through that. Yeah. <laughs> I think one of the low key like the mission behind the mission of the Friendly Fire show is to eventually uncover the Vietnam film where Willem Dafoe is not killed at the end. <laughs> it's got to be one of those out there. You know, I love any Vietnam movie where someone calls in. Uh, all remaining ordnance expended on my paws. Yeah. It's a lovely fucking war. 
Like I, 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 that's a, that can be a real tear jerking moment. If you're, if you're like a, a self-sacrifice junkie, like I am, you could fill a coffee cup with those tears. Even I did not get the, but there was none of that here. Right. Like he's not saying, he's not saying drop bombs on the tree line because the NVA is about to overrun the, the camp or whatever. He's not really, he's not even doing it. Like, save my guys no because the it's like in lieu of bombing the the nva bomb me <laughs> i i know exactly why willem defoe wants the bombs dropped on him it's that uh he doesn't want to face danny glover after having applied blackface immediately upon hitting the ground <laughs> <laughs> it's like not what? even nighttime and he's like let's get the blackface going what are you doing cole <laughs> <laughs> yeah he looks like a kook instead of a I mean, at, at first i think it, i think in in the movie's language milius is is trying to get us to accept that he is a super on the ground yeah. badass He's been, you know, he survived behind enemy lines all this time. Like, he knows what he's doing. He's carrying a knife, like a big, you know, he's carrying a Rambo knife. He's also named Tiger, so I thought he was going to make Tiger Stripes. Well, because he's got, he's wearing Tiger Stripe camo where none of the other pilots are. He's got special forces. Somehow he's got a special forces flight suit. That was a really cool detail. I was hoping for a moment of penetry having to do with that. Like, why, why is he so different in in what he gets to carry what he chooses to carry and what he wears because he's been on the ground adam he survived but i don't think yeah again maybe a navy pedant is going to chime in here but i don't think there was such a thing as a flight suit in tiger stripe camo i think that that was a that that was a camouflage pattern that was used by special forces and not by it's not like I think that was a custom job. I think he probably had that made in Subic Bay. It's pretty badass. But the problem was he he put he hits the ground, he puts the blackface on, he pulls his knife out and immediately gets killed. You know, like he doesn't he doesn't survive behind enemy lines for ten days. Like he gets into he gets into a fight with a guy and the guy murders him. I thought it was interesting how he quite literally just ran into the first person almost on accident and gets into it with him, right? Right. Yeah, but we don't get the, the the question of is he actually like a totally killer fighter who who just accidentally stepped on a landmine? You know, like that is never answered for us. Like we don't know whether he put on all that blackface, pulled out that knife and died because he's actually a clown cosplaying a a commando. It feels like the movie might be trading on a Willem Dafoe reputation in other films to make him seem more dangerous than than he is in this film. I kept expecting him to pull a gun on Grafton, like like in that on that mission where they're flying downtown to blow up the mis- the missiles. Like I expected there to be more conflict between him and Grafton, but all we ever get is the conflict between him and Camparelli. Yeah, once they decide they're going to go to Hanoi, they're just they're just high-fiving white guys for the rest of the movie. I like any movie or TV show where a couple of characters sing downtown. That's fun. <laughs> Don't hang around and let your troubles surround you. There are movie shows. Regardless of how you feel about uh, what they did, I totally fell for that moment. Like, they pull up the plane, they're basically doing barrel rolls of victory, they're lighting cigars or whatever singing a song that's a good moment but the thing that i couldn't get out of my head was this was illegal they went and bombed a city like they they've done something that is a war crime yeah. they went and bombed Samtown, ben which is in the middle of the vietnamese were illegally building tens of thousands of uh, of toilet paper tube rockets <laughs> and they were camouflaging them on a school ground and draping them with little kids and pregnant ladies. Mm. Yeah. I I loved the like HBO feature presentation style <laughs> miniature of right. Hanoi that they fly over. <laughs> that was so fun. I totally dug how it wasn't just an explosion in the park of all these paper towel rolls, but it was also like they were lighting off and the missiles were shooting through other buildings. Yeah, into children's hospitals. That's a pretty nice looking children's hospital. Was that really what that was? 
That's what the that's what the accusation was when they got back. I thought those were lies in the room. It hit something at them. Yeah. Just imagine landing your plane after a rogue mission. What that had to feel like. Yeah. Like when you're a kid, you come home from from doing something bad at school and you know shit's going down. Like you know you're going to be punished big time. Ugh. Yeah. Nauseating. Ben, you you don't know what that's like, but I'm I, I'm more talking to John, I guess. <laughs> I will have you know that every single school year of middle school, I was threatened with expulsion. I was uh, I was no stranger to the uh, to the ire of the administration. How about that? Because when Ben missed a putt, he always broke his putter. (laughs) Yeah, snapped it over my knee. That's bad sportsmanship, and that'll get you expelled right out. The problem with that is that they both knowingly sacrificed their Navy career, but in such a way that, as you were saying, Ben, there's no, they're the phantom shitters. There's nobody's ever going to know. Right. Like the Navy's going to cover up the hit. Probably no one on the ship is even going to know, but it's not going to matter because they're immediately going to be remanded to the brig and then sent to Leavenworth. (laughs) You know, like there's no, they don't even get a party. I feel like the, you know, in Top Gun, Tom Cruise fucks up. He fucks up over and over again. And yet in the end, it's Tom Cruise that comes through cool headed, defeats the Libyan Air Force or whatever whatever bullshit plot that movie has. (laughs) But this movie has all those same pieces. It's just that they, they put all the pieces in a bag and they shoot the bag up with a turd. (laughs) (laughs) They put, they put all the pieces in a bag with a turd and then put it in Adam's pocket and Adam walk around all afternoon. Yeah. Had Adam walk around with uh, meeting people in the hallways going, what are you doing down here? Uh, shouldn't you be on a different station right now? And Adam's like, you know, oh, I heard the phantom shitter has changed methods. Watch out for that. Always use a cup with a lid. The building blocks of this movie are all in the wrong order. Like the shoot down isn't the climax. Why is the shoot down the climax? Why is the rescue the climax? We don't really, we never cared about Camparelli. Like saving his life doesn't matter to us. Also, it's like the first time we get any indication that Camparelli goes on missions. Yeah, it felt to me like the captain going on an away mission. Like, it felt unusual to me in that way. Totally. That was a Star Trek reference. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Red shirt. Am I right? Uh-huh. It's the morgue. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> you can make the case that what Cool Hand and and tiger do like what like the the criminal act for which they are court-martialed is at, like something that happens out of radicalization like they've been they've been pushed to this fringe position that you know the death of of morgue and then the death of the tom sizemore character like give them the resolve to go do an illegal act and they go do it and that's that's like the question I asked right at the beginning of this podcast is like, does John Milius want us to be like radicalizing our own thinking alongside these guys? Or is this more of a descent into like, how did these two guys go so wrong? It, it kind of also gives us both outcomes, right? Tiger gets punished for defying the gods like he he did the bad thing and had to get bombs dropped on him as this movie's form of punishment. But also cool hand like gets an attaboy from the boss and is going to get to go serve on whatever ship he becomes the admiral of later. Yeah. Ultimately their rogue mission ends up being because of a, because of something that happened in the Paris peace accords ends up being American foreign policy so it's not like they're heroes. They still have to cover over the thing. It's just that we're going now back into Hanoi two days later, and we're going to do the same thing that you did, except now right. it's now it's our policy. And yet we still lose the Vietnam War. So anyway, it's a massive circle jerk. The only yeah. good thing about that final scene is that you get to see those Sky Raiders come in 
low on the trees multiple times. Awesome. Awesome. The greatest of the greatest of all close air support aircraft. Wingtip below the tree line is is how those planes were flying. Outrageous. So great. I gotta say those Skyraiders are in the, in my top five of all airplanes of all time. You know, Adam, that the that Skyraiders were super dangerous on aircraft carriers because if they missed the the tail hook and they had to go around, mm-hmm. if the pilots would put the throttle full forward, those engines produce so much torque. They would just torque roll on the on the on the deck of the ship. Like they wow. they would kill pilots just because they were too powerful. God, that's awesome. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> I you know what? Like that was such a <laughs> that was such an instinctual response. Like I don't even remember saying those words, but I know I did. <laughs> I read a really interesting long form article about a pilot who began as an A6 pilot and then transitioned into F14 Tom Cattery and the many differences between what it took to fly both of the planes. And that story you told John just made me think of that story as well. Like you can't just hop out of one plane into another and expect it to, to land the same or to feel the same. You can't piss in a mug of coffee. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Not all mugs are the same to piss in. You can't pull on Superman's cape. (laughs) You can't pull the mask off the old Lone Ranger. (laughs) Imagine flying your whole career with, uh, with, your buddy sitting next to you and then moving into a plane where where he's sitting behind. Or in a plane where you're all by yourself. Yeah. That sounds great. You'd be so lonely. I'll take that third thing. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the plane for Ben. <laughs> the F-19 loner. <laughs> the official fighter bomber of Friendly Fire. I'm the pilot that, uh, that goes off in the other direction on uh, all the funeral flights. Yeah. The missing man formation. Yeah. When they when they lower the hook out of the helicopter to pick me up, the hook comes back up empty. <laughs> I'm staying down here. <laughs> Looks too crowded up there in that helicopter. <laughs> well, uh, this film begins more or less with the death of Morg and... Like the scene where Maverick throws Goose's dog tags into the sea. So too does Jake Grafton. I just can't get over his name. (laughs) His fucking name is ridiculous. Jake Coolhand Grafton. There was a sequel to the to this to the book called Final Flight, because they were like, We've got to get more Jake Grafton stories. <laughs> Jake Grafton is the name of a kid playing D D who's who's like designed a human character uh, <laughs> given the name Jake Grafton. Special skills, uh dancing, I guess. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Jake throws uh Morg's bloody dice overboard and it's I think it's a scene that's emblematic of of the film itself because it's a moment that's supposed to make you feel a kind of way like so many other moments in this film. It's a moment that's happened before in better movies. (laughs) Fuzzy dice are fun, guys, but fuzzy dice covered in blood are not. And I think that's what makes those dice a great rating system for Flight of the Intruder. I think... uh, in this film, especially when things are, are bad or challenging, like uh, a, a line of dialogue you get all the time, uh, the encouragement to flow with it is a thing. And I feel like this is a film that wanted that phrase to catch on, you know, but it just didn't. But what it was great at was conveying to a viewer how you needed to feel to get through the film. I had a feeling that this movie was going to be a rough ride. Once I decided to just flow with it, uh, became a lot more fun for me. You can see where every scene is inspired from. You can see this movie struggle to be good. But tonally, this is a film that doesn't know what it wants to be scene to scene. And I think you know you're in trouble 
where you end one scene and you get to it to the next scene and you're like what is, what is this scene trying to say and then what is this scene trying to say you're like trying to build the runway for its story as you're watching it instead of just experiencing what these characters are trying to convey and i kept on trying to build the film in my head as it was happening in a really strange way it it almost didn't feel like watching a movie to me it felt unusual so maybe we didn't give top gun the credit that it deserved for riding that line between fun and action and grief because it takes a film like this to recognize how difficult it is to do that well don't don't try and turn your review of this movie into some kind of revisionist plea for top guns <laughs> we'll never know how the combined hosts of friendly fire <laughs> feel about top gun john it's a tragedy that's right lost to time like tears and rain it's the most superficial kind of masculinity, and I kind of expected more from John Milius. Like, going a little deeper with these characters that he's given us. Like, it's strange that that a guy like Milius, a guy who's, like, so hyper-celebratory of masculinity, has such a hard time articulating its qualities. Uh, also, where did Callie go? <laughs> I'm I'm genuinely concerned that maybe Jake Grafton killed her. I don't know. Mm. Two bloody dice are what I'm giving this film. I hate to do it. There's just not enough there there. Like, give me 20 minutes more planes, and that might be a three dice movie, but not enough planes, not enough of the tone to work for me. So, two bloody dice. It's a trope salad, but it doesn't really... It didn't feel like a trope salad to me watching it in the way that some of the other films that we've watched have felt like, you know, like when we watched um, Fury, I just kept feeling that movie like ring the Saving Private Ryan bell. Mm -hmm. And it felt like it was trying to get itself up into, uh, into a prestige that it wasn't earning by doing that. And this film is like, it is that it's just a, it's just a bunch of kinds of, scenes and characters that we've seen in other movies but i don't know it's it's like two trope salads it's like ambrosia dressing on a caesar ingredients or something like that it's like it doesn't make any sense and uh, <laughs> and i agree like the like more plain stuff i think may may have made this more fun to watch i right. i felt like i felt like i was missing the final countdown every time we were seeing the mechanics of the carrier and like takeoffs and landings and stuff. And this movie is leans on that so much less, you know, like it'll show the plane coming in for a landing and dropping its hook, but that's a, you know, a three second interstitial between two character moments, but then the character moments are like not satisfying. So I'm like, let's just go back and watch the totally amazing <laughs> mechanics of a flight deck on an aircraft carrier. That's more interesting than this. Yeah. And I, I, I think I agree. I think it's a two bloody dice movie. Yeah. You guys have said it all. It's a great plane movie. And, uh, I learned a lot about, a an aircraft. I didn't know that much about, I did not learn anything new about human nature. I did not learn anything new about love or military command structure. I didn't learn anything new about, about loss, about how to survive behind the lines. I didn't learn anything new about whores or mm. love of a good woman. Alligators. Alligators. I learned, a, I did learn about the phantom shitter. But I don't have independent confirmation of that as a like long-standing Navy tradition. I learned how to pee in a coffee cup, but not from the film. I learned that no, from you. You learned that yeah, from me. The film has misinformation on that <laughs> subject. <laughs> this film should come with a warning about that scene. <laughs> uh, let's see. I, it didn't occur to me to do, but apparently uh, phantom shitters are a Navy thing. We heard about that in a submarine context, right? Somebody wrote into Greatest Gen after we did a couple of submarine movie bonus episodes and told us about that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, so, I mean, that's something that I guess I, I, having never been in the Navy, I 
I, I haven't done that deep of a dive in Navy culture. And now I, now I know that's after 180 episodes of this show or whatever, we're, we're really, uh, digging down. I'm going to have a lot of stuff to talk to the guys at the VFW hall about, <laughs> but otherwise this movie just didn't, it didn't teach me anything. It made me just sort of, um, I'm not like you, Adam. I can't just like relax and have fun. This movie's dumb. Like the dumber a movie gets, the more that I, that I just crack popcorn kernels between my back teeth. <laughs> uh, but I, but I can't hate it because I can't hate it all the way down to zero. Cause I, cause it's such a good airplane movie. So I'm going to go with you guys Two bloody dice. Wow. All right. Three. Co-equal reviews. Very rare thing to happen on Friendly Fire. But do we all have the same guy? John, who's your guy? <laughs> I thought the best guy in this movie was Ving Rhames. He's so cool in everything. And and in this movie, he's playing, you know, like a like a chief. And he seems very capable. I kept wanting the I kept wanting to see more of the chief. I wanted him to save the day more often. He's wearing a pair of glasses that I actually own and wore for many years. But as soon as he appeared on screen in these glasses, I was like, oh, it's, it, 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 this is finally like it closes the circle. Now I understand. <laughs> I understand everything now. I don't know. I just, I, I, I loved seeing him and I, I love his voice and I love his glasses. <laughs> Um, this is the sound of Ben trying to pick someone other than David Schwimmer as his guy. <laughs> ben, ben, who's your guy? My guy is the dude that goes into the uh, into the mud pit, just because I think that if you're gonna go into a mud pit, you gotta go all the way in, and this guy yeah. really commits to that. Like <laughs> he gets completely like coated from head to toe, like a glazed mud man. <laughs> And uh, that movement is exciting because of how committed he is to to doing it. And it was like, it's a, it, it's a scene that makes no sense, but it was like one of the most entertaining scenes in the movie, which, you know, says more about the movie than the scene, I guess. But uh, <laughs> I respected that dude's commitment to the bit. Yeah, you don't want to be the guy hanging off of the edge of the ride uh, and then losing your grip and then falling in feet first. No, that would that sucks. Yeah. You don't want to be that guy. No. What about you, Adam? Uh, I don't know if my guy has a name, but you know him from a couple of scenes in that briefing room. Camparelli is always throwing to him, movie officer, what's the film tonight? And I love the idea that there's a guy whose job it is, is to pick the movies for everyone else to watch. That is an incredible amount of power in that room. <laughs> and it's it's an incredible amount of risk if he gets it wrong. If he picks a movie that he likes that no one else does, that's pretty rough. So I so just the idea of a movie officer intrigues me greatly. And uh I thought that the movie officer in this film chose some pretty good movies, so he's my guy. Good guys. Nice. We have a movie officer on our show. That's true. <laughs> and it's a uh, it's lieutenant junior grade d120 right i'd choose a different coffee cup than uh than that other coffee cup john if i were you <laughs> maybe give it a sniff first see if you got one that's right for the die this coffee cup is my pea mug and my die mug <laughs> here we go lieutenant jg 120 sided die as commanded by captain john roderick of the friendly fire aircraft carrier. Here it is. Three. The number is three. Not going many years earlier in time uh, of, uh, of the events depicted. A little, a couple more than three, but uh, but but not too far back. We're going to. The Cuban Missile Crisis, gentlemen. A year 2000 film directed by Roger Donaldson. It is 13 days. 13 days with Kevin Costner. Kevin Costner as John F. Kennedy 
friend. <laughs> Here's a movie that does not have Tom Sizemore. It is not directed by John Milius. This is uh, this is Bruce Greenwood as Kennedy, right? Yeah. Fun. I feel like for a long time we were always looking for the Rickles of the movies, and now it's it's looking for the Sizemores. We're finding more Sizemores than Rickles. Yeah. Yeah. These days, that's for sure. I think that's just a function of the like we we've watched like a lot of uh, a lot of '90s and 2000s movies recently. It's just been what we've been rolling. Right. But um, I did a thing where I like highlighted all of the dates of all the movies on our list, and then I highlighted all the dates of the movies on our on the list of movies we've watched. And the average year was like something in the '80s, but it was like surprisingly close. Hmm. Like what the what the average came out to was was surprisingly close in a fun way I, I i remember seeing this movie in the theater so it'll be interesting to revisit it it's been 20 years can you believe it since i saw this movie in the theater crazy yeah all right dudes we'll leave it with robs from here so for john roderick and adam pranica i've been ben harrison to the victor go the spoiler alerts listen to me Friendly Fire is a Maximum Fun podcast hosted by Adam Pranica, Ben Harrison, and John Roderick. The show is produced by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music. And our podcast art is by Nick Dittmer. Are you looking for more Friendly Fire? Last year, at this time, your host reviewed The Mouse That Roared from 1959. It's a satirical comedy with a ban the bomb theme, starring Peter Sellers. How about supporting Friendly Fire? You can do that by going to MaximumFun.org join. For as little as $5 a month, you can gain access to our Porkchop bonus feed. And not only that, you get all the bonus content brought to you by the shows from the Maximum Fun Network. And don't forget, you can now follow us on Twitter and Instagram under the handles FriendlyFireRSS. You do not want to miss out on that online content. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week with another episode of Friendly Fire. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.